0: You're listening to ABS In Mind, a bi weekly podcast bringing you the latest buzz from the asset backed markets. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. This is ABS In Mind, and I'm your host, Deanna S. I'm joined today by my colleagues, Morris Sadovi and Al Yin. Good morning, morning. both. Morning. Al, you were here on the last episode too when our guest was discussing the commercial real estate sector, especially the struggling retail and ho- hotels st- sectors. And I thought he made an interesting point about kind of differentiation between both retail and hotel properties and you know that not all of them are dead and everybody's kind of treating them similarly while there should be a little more differentiation and Morris, since you are covering cmbs for us at debt Wire, i was uh wondering what kind of the general sentiment around this with investors are you kind of hearing this um across the board too
1: yeah i think everyone's doing a lot of credit work and underwriting and trying to figure out which bonds uh you know what what the collateral is and how they're being affected by rents or not lack of payment of rents um you know even in uh, so retail and hotel have been the hardest hit uh, uh i think everyone mostly agrees on that uh, there's differences of opinion whether retail some people see a darker outlook. We had a guest on, uh, from CW Capital saying he, uh, uh, you know, uh, about a month ago saying he, he saw, a you know, very dark conversations across the retail sector in, in the near future, um, with borrowers in the, re- you know, mall borrowers, um, uh, and, and less so he, 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 he seemed to see, uh, promise for the hotels. Um, um, there was a, a report from Cantor yesterday seeing, you know, uh, I think it was more concerned about hotels, um, looking at, uh, SASB deals, um, but in general, uh, uh, talking about, um, lenders, uh, Cantor is predicting that, uh, lenders, uh, are going to be, uh, you know, taking over, uh, a number of the SASB deals. I think it's about like nine percent of, um, uh, remembering correctly, um, uh, due to, uh, uh d- the distress. Um, um, uh, yeah, it's, I th- think they expect that 9.5% of, uh, 2017 to t- 2020 SASBs, uh, will eventually have mezzanine lenders becoming owners. Um, mm-hmm. so, um, it's kind of like a time where everyone's trying to figure out which, which are those deals. Um, so, um, so yeah, it's it's um, it's a mixed outlook, um, but definitely everybody's, you know, re-underwriting all properties.
0: Right, right. Interesting. Thank you. And to help us dive deeper, we also have uh, Scott Bukta, the Managing Director and Head of Fixed Income Strategy at Brain Capital. Hi, Scott. Thanks so much for joining.
2: Happy to be here. Good morning.
0: Morning and before we dive in uh, with some of the specific questions, Scott, could you give us general? Could you tell us generally what you're spending your time on mostly these days?
2: So today we're, we're focusing really on the functioning of the market. So we're looking at, at liquidity and, and what investors are doing and who the marginal buyers and sellers are. We're certainly focused on the impact that the Fed and the Fed programs have had, not only from a purchase point of view with the, with the Treasuries and the mortgage purchases, but also from a financing point of view through TELF. We're also really focused on the different geographies and and the slow reopenings of some states versus the the, really the tied-up versions um, in other states where they're they're much slower to, to slowly reopen. But what we're really focusing on here as well is the impact of the economic slowdown on forbearance rates. And I think it really impacts both the residential markets and the commercial markets, and we're looking at a lot of the underlying fundamentals that are going to drive a lot of these cash flows going forward.
0: Thank you, and Mora, I'll like let you take over with the CMBS questions, please.
1: Yeah, I was just wondering, um, you know, since uh, you and I talk a lot about the CMBS secondary market, um, just wondering how, what the outlook is, sort of what how you've tracked the post-pandemic CMBS secondary market. Is it uh, still a, a tale of two cities in that we've seen a return to, to some degree, of liquidity and spread compression concentrated in seniors? Um, uh, or you know how has that started to come down the stack that sort of uh, some some recovery?
2: i I think it definitely is focused in your in at the top of the stack with the super seniors and the last cash flows. That's certainly where we've seen the most activity from investors, especially money managers and insurance companies. The spreads out there have gone from pre-COVID, where you had bonds trading in the 70s and 80s and 90s, out to the high 200s, low 300s at the peak of, of kind of what I'll call illiquidity at the end of march where you had a lot of force selling in other sectors there was a little bit in cmbs but not as much as you saw in other sectors because less leveraged players a lot more stronger hands but we've seen that sector come back in and the last cash flow is really into the 140s and 150s and you've seen a compression between the higher quality more liquid names and the less liquid names so Wider trading names have actually moved into the 170s. So there's, there's a fair amount of liquidity at the top of the stack, and I think that's going to continue.
1: When do you expect the credit liquidity to come, to come back, you know, further down the stack? and Are there any triggers that we, we haven't seen that we need to see for that to happen?
2: Yeah, I think what we've seen is is as people reach for yield, I mean, obviously the the feds had a huge impact on corporate credit and, and those spreads have really gapped in. In fact, For the first time that I can remember, if you look at the indices, CMBS actually yields more than corporates when you think about the liquid IG index versus the CMBS index. So I think now you're starting to get a lot of crossover buyers going into the top of the stack. But because of the reach for yield, we've actually started to see ASs tighten in quite a bit. So ASs and actually even double As. But that's about where people are going that I would consider traditional money managers. I think the single A, triple B sector is really really still driven much more by hedge funds right now and, and deep credit hedge funds. There's a lot more loan analysis going on there. So I would say that it, it's kind of ratcheting in one sector at a time, but to date, it's really kind of just starting to reach the double A's.
1: Um, and do you, uh, you talked about the reach for yield. Has, what, what kind of How have the yields changed in the last, you know, in the last month or two? Um, have you seen a significant change there?
2: Well, we, we saw the AAAs A's come in from the high two hundreds, low three hundreds back into the kind of the mid one hundreds. We've seen the double A classes that were really wide. Actually, a lot of those were trading almost in the in the five hundreds, right? And six hundreds, but those have actually come back into the, you know, from the, the high three hundreds for the better quality names to the low mid three hundreds. They really can't break through that three hundred level. So you're probably getting some you know four to five percent yields for double A credit. Now certainly in from the wides, but but still very very attractive versus single A or triple B corporates.
1: Mm-hmm. And what's your take? Some critics are saying that uh, 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 pricing services or funds have been slow to mark down credit bonds that you know in the CMBS market that um, you know they're really uh, that that that's a, a problem uh, in the sector right now. Um, What's your take on that That sort of critique?
2: Well, I think it's it's always kind of true when you see spreads move or prices move in one way or the other, the pricing services tend to follow. And one of the things right now that you've really got is a lack of trading in a lot of these sectors, right? They're very opaque markets. Even when you see bonds trade, they tend to trade out of comp or even bonds to trade in comp off a list. There's very little color given. And a lot of that is to protect both the buyers and the sellers. And it actually improves market liquidity a little bit more. Now, what you see with the pricing services, where you look at matrix pricing, it's very easy to benchmark off of new deals. But the lack of new issuance has really also impacted these markets. The big thing, though, why it's very hard to price from a pricing service point of view is you might actually, if you put a bond, out on a list, you might actually have a range of bids that are 10 points or more. So it's really hard to put a price on a bond. And I think because of that, the the market tends to price things slowly down because you don't want to overshoot on, on the one side, right, and then have it come back. I think from money, a money manager point of view, you'd really try – to be a little bit more steady in in how you mark bonds down so you don't really have a big impact on your NAVs. And I think pricing services follow that as well.
1: Historically, what happened like in previous dislocations, say I think in 2016, there was one, did this crop up, this issue crop up and in terms of, you know, um, the the, um, lack of, of, of um, price discovery and, and, and pricing services being slow to respond or?
2: Yeah, and I think the big reason there was in 2016, there was regulatory changes and capital changes that really forced a number of primary dealers to close their desks. So you had a liquidity crisis, mainly because a lot of primary dealers got out of the market, spreads gapped wider, but then they quickly recovered within about three to six months. And, and that's one of the dangers of marking everything in a fast-moving market, especially an illiquid fast-moving market. And I think you you want to err on the side of caution in, in terms of mark-to-market pricing because you can have huge volatile swings of 5 to 10 points, as we said, in a very short period of time. So I think people tend to mark things down. And I think as soon as you see the market firm and stabilize and more trading – takes place closer to clearing levels, I think at that point, pricing services will catch up.
1: Hmm, interesting. Um, and, and I think you mentioned you have uh, different types of buyers in the c sector, uh, or, or are you seeing a change in the types of buyers lower in the capital stack or the names you're yeah. seeing?
2: yeah definitely what you saw historically even you know before covid is is really your insurance companies were the really the buy and hold investors and they were the primary buyers in the the single A and triple B sectors and and that's where they went they went for yield they felt good about the credit they often invested in real estate themselves That's really changed in here where if we're seeing insurance companies, they really don't have to reach for yield by going down to single A, triple B. They're much more comfortable at the top of the stack, maybe in the ASs or even the double A's. Really what we've seen is the hedge funds that used to play in the double B's have actually moved up into the single A and triple B's because there's a lot of yield there and they have the ability to do the credit work.
1: And so who's in the triple B's?
2: That's really right I mean, now is the that is funds. that the vacuum? No it's single A's and triple B's are all deep credit investors right They're running things much yeah. more pessimistically and conservative, but there's a lot of yield there because single A's, are still trading in the 500 to 700 over. So those are high single digit yields. The triple Bs uh-huh. are still trading on a dollar price basis. So there's certainly double digit yields there to be had. And that's the type of returns that attract more hedge funds than anything else. I think a lot of real money accounts, you know, there's a lot of yield there. They really don't want to take that risk of the mark-to-market risk or the credit risk or really trying to keep up on all the underlying loans. So they're playing much higher up in the capital stack where there is actually, like we said, in the AA's and and the AS's, there's a lot of yield versus IG corporates. So you've seen your real money move up and you've seen your hedge funds actually move into the single A, triple B space.
3: Scott, you mentioned uh, hedge funds moving up in credit and CMBS. I'm wondering if that's happening on the Resi side as well.
2: You know what, I think on the Resi side, it's it's really interesting because most of the Resi, when you when you think about where hedge funds play in Resi, it tends to be down in credit anyway or in legacy paper, and a lot of the legacy paper is is non-IG anyway to start with. So I think on the Resi side, hedge funds are still kind of playing up and down the, the price stack, we'll call it, um, but they've definitely repriced the market. But I think they're still playing in a lot of the places they used to play the big difference is that a lot of leverage has been taken out of that sector through both the REITs and hedge fund deleveraging.
3: Okay, thank you, uh, Maura. Back to you.
1: Um, just wondering about that 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 shift. I mean, there there have been some, you know, especially early on in the uh, uh, this crisis, um, there were some people that were uh, uh, saying, you know, the commercial real estate market, you know, will will not. You know that that, that uh, it was overpriced, and that there are so many shifts in the way that uh, people will use real estate. That uh, you know they, that uh, that you know they sounded the alarm. Um, are you getting the sense that that's trickled down to the hedge funds? That they're, uh, or are they coming back with the appetite that they had previously? You know, I guess I'm just wondering if the, if there if there's sort of a a shift in the way hedge funds are looking at CRE versus RESI and, you know, that that they might be more comfortable with RESI.
2: No, absolutely, but I think actually where the hedge funds are more comfortable right now is in in the commercial, mainly because there's more yield to be had there, and if you've got the ability to do the deep credit work, you're you're getting paid for that in terms of returns. I think right now, when you think about what is performing best in here, it's certainly gonna be residential, and that could be multifamily or single family. And one of the things we've seen is the forbearance rates really picked up in April, but they've really stabilized in May. And I think the big reason for that is the fiscal stimulus checks that have been made, the the initial checks that were sent out in the mail or the enhanced unemployment checks, it's really allowing people to stay current and service their housing debt, right? Be it rent, be it a mortgage. A lot of people um, that have gotten these fiscal stimulus checks, even though you've had job and income losses for the time being are able to make those housing payments. I think in addition, the lack of spending and um, more people are saving. Actually, also allows this debt service to be much easier.
3: At, uh, I'm going to pick up on that for for a second. Um, regarding uh, the forbearances on the resume space, I mean, definitely we've heard that uh, the the take up of forbearances has has slowed. In fact, uh, uh, one read this morning. Uh, um, one of the co CIO CIOs of Two Harbors uh, spoke on a KBW. Uh, conference uh, this morning and was telling listeners that uh, um the rate of increase uh of the forbearance take up on its portfolio has slowed dramatically um two harbors is a big uh, has a big msr book so it uh cares very much about that and um yeah, you know, but he was uh, basically pretty confident that uh, this was going to be a permanent thing, that the rate of increase would slow because they've actually, you know, reduced their their uh, their their assumptions on on what the uptake will be going forward. But uh, you think that uh, there'll be another spike going forward after these uh, stimulus checks have been played out?
2: Yeah, I think it really depends on on what happens in CARES 4.0. I think initially our projections for seven to nine percent in April in total forbearance were right on the screws, and we were thinking ten to fifteen percent in May because we were looking at the initial jobless claims and the, the income losses. And I think what's held it in check has really been these fiscal stimulus checks. Right, um, the consumer is actually in pretty good shape in here for the time being. Now. If these stimulus checks fall off and they don't extend these unemployment benefits past July, I think what's going to happen is at that point, you're going to see a a big pickup in forbearance because we do not think that the economic recovery is really going to be instantaneous. It's much more of a swoosh than it is a V or even a U, and it's going to take take a while. I still think we do get up into the the mid, uh, like the 15 range in terms of forbearance. But I think it's more of a June and July event than a May event. One of the things to think about as well, though, is the fact that delinquencies lag forbearance. And I think one of the things to look at from a trend point of view is in April, over 40% of the borrowers that took forbearance in April made an April payment. And that's according to the Black Knight data as well as, as the MBA. And what the Black Knight is reporting for May is that, current payment for anybody in forbearance in May dropped to 21%. So I think delinquencies are going to pick up and could double even though forbearance rates are only up about
3: 2%. Okay, Scott, but isn't, isn't it also true that uh, mortgage bonds have been trading a little bit better because the worst case scenarios uh, that, you know, people were thinking at the end of March anyway uh, are not playing out. I mean, are people getting a little bit uh, ahead of their, over their skis on this, do you think?
2: No, I I think it's interesting. I think refinancing risk is actually higher than forbearance and and buyout risk at this point in general. Um, I think what we missed in March, and remember, you got to separate liquidity, which is really what drove all the prices down, and fundamentals, now that we've kind of found a, a stability in the market in terms of less forced selling, less margin calls, now the market's trading much more on fundamentals than it is on liquidity, And I think what you've seen in here is people's initial pessimism about how quickly um, delinquencies would rise and how quickly uh, forbearance requests would go up. have, Have we really overestimated that. And I think it was, again, because of the fiscal stimulus checks. It'll be really interesting to see how that plays out in the third quarter if these stimulus checks continue to come or if not. The one thing I think that's going to help everybody's fundamental situation, though, is it appears for right now that both the administration, Congress, and the Fed are willing to do whatever it takes to, to keep the economy going.
3: Um, thanks, Scott. Can you uh, maybe give us some detail on uh, how this uh, forbearance uh, trend will differ between agency and non-agency?
2: Uh, Yeah, Al, yeah, there's a lot going on there, actually. Um, One of the big things in the CARES Act was that it specifically talked about forbearance for government-guaranteed loans. So it'd be Freddie Mac, Fannie Mae, and Ginnie Mae. But what we saw was a lot of state attorney generals actually tried to go above and beyond the CARES Act and and talk about giving forbearance to non-government-guaranteed loans as well as part of the the requirement for doing business in that state. I know New York State actually was one where the Attorney General was a little bit more aggressive on that front than others, but there's certainly other attorney generals that were involved in this, and I think what we've seen in CARES Act 4.0 was they want to extend that forbearance beyond just Freddie, Fannie, and Ginny and give forbearance to all borrowers. So that's going to be potentially a big issue going forward. Now, we expect a lot of that language to be watered down in the Senate, but certainly the way it it, it looks in the House bill, there's a lot more forbearance provisions, as well as protections for servicers and trustees um, against investor lawsuits kind of a safe harbor if they're following the, the letter of the law.
3: Okay. Thank you, Scott. I'm going to flip it back to Maura.
1: Um, on that forbearance line uh, of, of, of of thought, uh, Scott, just wondering uh, on the commercial mortgage side, uh, many were looking to the agencies for guidance initially. Well, how do you, what they're offering, uh, and how uh, th- how do you see that playing out in terms of uh, what is happening on the commercial side with forbearance and and rent?
2: yeah, so I think on the residential multifamily, we'll start with that. I think rent collections actually increased in May, and again, it's it's because of the the stimulus checks. In fact, rent collections were were in the high eighty percent range in May through the middle of May, which is which is pretty good considering all the job losses. I think that when you think about the agencies, um the big difference in multifamily and single family is single family, you only have to ask for forbearance. Actually, in multifamily, you have to prove need. And I think what's going on is that trend is going to lag. And I think it's going to lag because rents are being paid on the multifamily side. In fact, Fannie Mae released their list this morning, and there was only 200 dust loans that were actually in forbearance. So the multifamily sector has has performed very well. I think what's going to go happen on the rest of the commercial real estate sector, though, is when you look at hospitality and you look at retail, a lot of the retail Mall owners and managers are probably going to have to offer forbearance to their tenants. If they offer forbearance to their tenants or just have a hard time collecting rent, let's say you can only collect 40 or 50% of your rent, you're going to have a hard time servicing your debt, so you're probably going to have to go to your servicer and ask for some relief there, and I think at that point the loan gets transferred to special servicing and you might see an appraisal reduction take place. So what I think is going to happen short term on the commercial real estate side is you are going to see some cash flow interruption in terms of interest shortfalls in the lower classes as forbearance is given to these retail and, and hotel operators. And I think going from there, it's really going to de- depend on the, the shape of the, the recovery. You know, is it going to be longer? Do we get a second wave of a virus or actually do we start reopening? Um, slowly and, and start getting people reperforming. But I think going forward, I, I would expect that there's still going to be a lot of cash flow interruption and a lot of interest shortfalls, which is going to be because of forbearance given to these retail and hotel operators.
1: And and how do the interest shortfalls? Uh, uh, what does that do for to the uh, investors or the value of the bonds?
2: So it, it hurts the value of the bonds, because if you think about how prepayments work or how payments work is the principal and interest that's actually paid is top down. So your, your AAA borrowers do really well, but your interest shortfalls are actually bottom up. So it's the lower classes that get hit first on the interest shortfalls. Now, when loans are liquidated, you can recover those shortfalls, but the key is, is having your tranche outstanding at that time where, where the loan is liquidated. But I think what one of the interesting things that we're talking to people about on the AAA level is in some of these shorter, you know, more seasoned AAAs, where actually if the credit markets tighten up and you've got a performing loan that can't refinance, you can actually modify and extend that loan. And it's one of the things that we saw at the end of, of the crisis a couple of years later in 2011 and 2012 was these loans that were maturity, you had what was called a maturity default. And actually the loan just got extended, kind of keep making your old payments. But if you own a bond that's a two year bond at a premium and that bond now becomes a three year bond or a four year bond, there's actually a lot of upside at the AAA level in, in that instance.
1: Well, um, just stepping back to, we're, we're running out of time here. I really appreciate this. But um, just since, uh, just wondering, we, we're in an unprecedented time, just wondering what the you know, I don't think we can just say that too much. One of the few times we can't, but anyway, it's, what's the biggest surprise to you in terms of how the CMBS market, or or for that matter, the, um, the RMBS markets have reacted to this pandemic?
2: You know what, what's interesting to me, and I, and I was, I would think actually the biggest surprise to me is how well the CMBS markets have performed. When you think about once you get through all the the forced selling and that's both the, the CMBS and and RMBS and you start focusing on fundamentals, I think you actually have things priced, you know, pretty appropriately in a lot of these cases, right? You've got triple B bonds trading anywhere from the dollar price to the forties and fifties and sixties. So credit is kind of priced appropriately there, right? You've got deep credit investors that are really looking at, at the underlying cash flows. The same thing with the, uh, the single A's, right? And now you've got triple B's, that's more your yield buyers. So I actually think that the CMBS market has returned to a fundamental um, analysis and fundamental pricing pretty quickly. I think one of the biggest surprises is actually to me how fast the market recovered in general, and I think it's really just due to the extraordinary measures taken by the Fed. In in terms of the the Fed's purchase activity has really allowed the markets to recover faster than we thought from a price point of view. And I think one of the things that's interesting is the introduction of TALF for CMBS was really the catalyst that helped tighten spreads. But at the end of the day, we really think that there's going to be more of a negligible impact on spreads going forward. And we think that a lot of the TELF funds are gonna be raised are actually gonna be involved in more scalable trades in in higher yielding assets, but certainly it's a very, very positive fundamental there. But I think the biggest surprise is just how quickly everything's recovered.
1: Interesting. So it's the promise of TELF, not necessarily uh, direct funds uh, actions helping CMS. Correct.
2: Yeah, and typically the Fed, when they do things, the the actual announcement tends to move the market more than the actual implementation.
1: Well, I think that's it for my questions. Deanna, uh, I'll step back.
0: Thank you. I think this is actually a good uh, place to close the discussion. Thank you so much, Scott, uh, for being here. Hope uh, we can have you join again at some point in the future. And thank you, um, and Mora and our producer, Christian, for making this episode happen. And a short announcement, uh, Al Yoon would actually, will actually be taking over ABS in Mind starting in the next episode. And I don't know about you, but I'm very excited because I'm sure it's going to get much more entertaining. So thanks, Al, for taking over. Well, it's a tough
3: act of <laughs> follow Diana, believe me <laughs>
0: we'll, we'll miss sure you won't be well. thank you everyone and um, we'll see you all next episode of ABS in mind thank you thank you thanks for listening to ABS in mind if you like our show and want to know more subscribe to Deadwire and follow us on social media please like share and comment and join us for our next episode soon